Hello there, I'm Toby Haydoke, and you ride without rest to reach your destination. Welcome to Too Much Information, which aims to tell you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, a television programme about hurtling into danger with a spring in your step and a smile on your face. Whether you're discovering the episodes for the very first time, or you know your Ling Ties from your Ling Taos, then you're extremely welcome on this odyssey behind the scenes, which aims to go through the series one episode at a time. In this edition, it's an episode which features action, education and equestrianism, in an instalment which also features some of the first examples of the kind of colourful guest characters who will come to be amongst the series' bonus delights over the years. So join me, Toby Haydock, as I give you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, rider from shang or, well, I would ride 300 miles a day, then I would ride 300 more. First broadcast on the 21st of March, 1964, at 5.15pm. It starred William Hartnell as Doctor Who, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman, with guest stars Mark Eden as Marco Polo and Darren Nesbitt as Tigana. It was written by John Lucarotti, produced by Verity Lambert, and directed by Boris Hussein. It was watched by 9.4 million people, and the audience appreciation was 59. The Mongols gather outside the camp, waiting to attack, but Ian's discovery of the dead guard has tipped the travellers off and so Marco is awoken and Tigana instructed to help with the defence, which he has to do to maintain his trustworthy charade. Ian suggests using the bamboo on the fire to scare the attackers, who surge in, not subtly, as they were ordered to do by Tigana. For their help in fending off the bandits, Marco revokes his seizure of the travellers' caravan. Ling Tao, a special dispatch rider, comes with word from Kubla Khan, who wishes to see Marco without delay. Ping Cho steals the TARDIS key and gives it to the time travellers, which means they might, finally, be able to make their escape. The When 13th of January 1964. Filming begins on Marco Polo and today's shooting includes a short sequence needed for this episode. It's the bit where the bamboo explodes on the fire, which is not something you'd want to see happening in an as-live studio situation. 15th of January. The team are still filming at Ealing, and today a shot of Tigana looking around is captured, and it is likely that this is used with the map superimposed over it to illustrate the last of Marco's map entries in this episode. 16th of January. Mark Eden records Marco's diary sessions today, including the narration for episode 5, Rider from Shang 2. It is originally planned to record some goldfish footage at Kew Gardens today for the scene in which they are spotted by Ping Cho and Susan at the way station. This is to avoid having to wrangle and keep them in the electronic studio. But ultimately, the fish come to Ealing Studios today instead. The table models for Marco Polo are also recorded, including the tents in the bamboo forest, which pretty much open up this instalment. So please ignore what you heard in previous episodes of Too Much Information about the model shots. Episode 1's Mountain Vista, the tent in the plateau in that episode as well, episode 2's tent in the desert, as well as this episode's model, all seem to have been recorded today, not on the 13th, as scheduled. If a new bit of paper that has just come to light that the BBC archive does not have is correct. Always learning, and always happy to be corrected. 24th of February. Rehearsals begin for Rider from Shang Tu at the Army Drill Hall in Uxbridge Road. Joining the cast is an eclectic mix of performers. American Paul Carson plays the title role of the Rider from Shang Tu, Ling Tao. Norwegian Tati Lemko is the one-eyed bandit Kuichu, who is never actually named on screen. 
and Hungarian Gabor Boraka is the colourful waste station manager Wang Lo. Modern viewers, unnerved by the idea of Western actors undergoing makeup to pass themselves off as East Asian, might do well to take into account the eclecticism of this casting. Whilst unsuitable for today's much more diverse casting landscape, it's positively cosmopolitan for 1964. Asian director Warris Hussein knows what it is like to be different, and his friendship group and casting circles reflects this. Baraka's harrowing story of getting from Hungary to Uxbridge Road will be told later in this episode. Michael Guest, playing the small part of the Mongol bandit who gives Akhmat someone to talk to, has sci-fi credentials. He was an extra playing a policeman in Quatermass and the Pit in 1958-59 and will go on to appear in small roles in Doctor Who again, as the wristwatch wrangling villager in The Time Meddler and Marvik Chen's interviewer in The Daleks' Master Plan, as well as an uncredited turn as a man-at-arms in The Crusade. Outside of the rehearsal rooms, however, not everything is going swimmingly behind the scenes. T. Plunkett Green, William Russell's agent, passes on his client's comments from a letter of the 23rd of February about his dissatisfaction with events which occurred during the making of The Wall of Lies and the Radio Times publicity for The Roof of the World. See last episode. And T. Plunkett Green is keen for things to change going forward. He goes straight to the top, writing to Donald Wilson and telling him that we are rather worried about a communication we have had from William Russell concerning Doctor Who. Russell's grievances are then quoted verbatim before Plunkett Green concludes, We appreciate how difficult it is to keep a popular series going with a consistently high standard of scripts. However, we would appreciate hearing from you if there is anything you can do in the matter on behalf of our client. Wilson passes this on to Lambert with the instruction that she... Speak urgently. This is the last thing Wilson needs today, as it would otherwise have been a positive one for Doctor Who, because today is the day that he writes to the head of business at Television Enterprises, confirming that there is now a commitment to 52 weeks of Doctor Who. Hooray! This will take the series up to week 39, but Wilson confides that he thinks the series will run longer. And it's fair to say that his instinct here is kind of correct. He also states that there is a plan to resurrect the Daleks. Of course. But that that won't happen until well into the summer. But whatever, this is the first time Doctor Who has had its first year of survival guaranteed. 26th of February. John Crockett, clearly enthused about Doctor Who, having directed last week's instalment of Marco Polo, sends David Whittaker a memo suggesting other historical events which might make for thrilling adventures for our heroes. They include Jack Cade, Peasant's Revolt, Pilgrimage of Grace, Viking Raids on Britain, The 45 and Bonnie Prince Charlie, Drake and the Armada, Rally and Colonisation, The Globe Theatre, Burbage, Alain, Plague and Puritans, The Australian Convict Settlement, the Roman Invasion of Britain, or Defeat of Romans in Britain, referencing the works of historian and novelist Alfred Duggan. Writer Malcolm Hulk has already pitched a Romans in Britain idea as it happens. The Crusades and Richard I. Akhenaten and his downfall. Akhenaten was an Egyptian pharaoh who radically altered the religious policy of his people. The Guelphs and the Ghibellines, which refers to religious struggles between the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor in the 12th and 13th centuries. Medici, Leonardo, Michelangelo, Savonarolo, etc., Benvenuto Cellini, all the last three are bracketed together as Florence. So, more Italian shenanigans, basically. Covered wagons, 18th, early 19th century Cornish smugglers and wreckers, and Bodicea. As we shall see, the Crusades and Richard I end up in one of Whitaker's own contributions to the show, with the Vikings not far behind them, courtesy of Dennis Spooner, and the Cornish smugglers sometime later, but when Crockett is long gone from the series. And it takes a while longer, long after Crockett's death, in fact, for the Globe Theatre to make it into the show. And we're still waiting for Doctor Who and the Peasants' Revolt, or Doctor Who and the Australian Convict Settlement. As a result of William Russell's agent writing to the production team 
Verity Lambert now plays close attention to the cast during rehearsals over the next couple of days, reassuring them that with this new 52-week commitment, scripts will have a better run-in and this will reduce the necessity for late rewrites and lessen the chances of unbalanced contributions from the core characters. 28th of February. Rider from Shangtu is recorded in Lime Grove Studio D. Another addition to the guest cast is a small spider monkey hired to sit on Kuichu actor Tati Lemko's shoulder. Unfortunately, with all the clatter and commotion of the studio, the creature gets spooked and defecates all over its co-star, as well as escaping onto the high gantries. Its lack of cooperation leads to numerous hold-ups, and its expellation of nervous energy in the form of faecal matter does not, when combined with the hot studio lights, make for the most comfortable of recordings. More compliant are human non-speaking artists, Gordon Bremworth and Stanley Chen, who double up, the first time extras have really done this in the series, playing two roles in one episode, Mongol bandits early on and then travelling merchants later. Val Musetti, who died with a knife in the back outside the camp last week, returns as one of the Mongol bandits waiting outside this week whilst David Anderson, a non-professional performer but a martial artist who production assistant Douglas Campfield has to thank for getting him out of an altercation in a pub, makes his first contribution to the show, uncredited as the guard Ian knocks out towards the end of the episode. And he will be back. The presence of the monkey warrants yet another photo call for the story, and an on-set photographer captures images between 5pm and 7pm, i.e. during camera rehearsal, which actually starts at 4.15pm and finishes at 7pm. Recording is scheduled to take place between 8.30pm and 9.45pm. Doctor Who's key envisager Sidney Newman writes to BBC producer-director James McTaggart regarding, and I quote, money and recording facilities, which gives some insight into the working practices and finances within the BBC at the time that Rider from Shangtu is being made and his missive reflects well on the department that is producing it. Drama Group as a whole is in difficulties with respect to money. We're overspending our allotment by very many thousands of pounds. I should like to mention here that this does not apply to Serial's department, who in fact managed to make considerable savings, which is helping to reduce the total group debt. The vigilance of story editors who help determine the ultimate shape of the play is vital in eliminating the necessity for discontinuous recording. Donald Wilson replies to T. Plunkett Green today, and he is in mollifying mode with William Russell's agent. He sympathises with the agent and confesses that he too was unsatisfied with the Radio Times cover image. Pictures of the regulars were taken at the same session, he assures T. Plunkett Green, but ultimately... The magazine decides what images to run. All we can do is protest after the event. This I am doing, he writes. As for upcoming scripts, he passes on the information that Lambert has been liaising with her actors and outlining future plans, with the series now guaranteed for the year, and states that... I assure you that I will myself be watching very carefully to make sure that neither William Russell nor our own interests suffer from scripts which do not use his talents to the maximum. 6th of March. The final shot and closing credits of Rider from Shang Tu are re-recorded just before the recording of the following episode, Mighty Kubla Khan. The reason for this retake, which is then inserted onto the end of the episode, is unclear, but perhaps it is to redo the credits as centrally justified, which they are from now on, and, as discussed in the previous edition of Too Much Information, may have been last week, but we don't know as there are no telesnaps from The Wall of Lies. But it could all be for a different reason entirely, as it seems an awful lot of trouble to go to for a tiny aesthetic change. But we just don't know. 21st of March. Rider from Shangtu is broadcast on BBC television at 5.15pm. The last time for now that Doctor Who is transmitted at this time. It is down half a million viewers on last week, but that still means it has parity with episodes 1 to 3 of the story, and it has also lost one appreciation point. 22nd of March. We can count Fred Cook of The Sunday Citizen as not a fan. 
He writes, I'm surprised by the enthusiasm children have for the science fiction series Doctor Who. How can they accept the irascible Doctor Who, William Hartnell, as the leader of the expedition into space and time? So often, the old man in the loud check trousers, who looks and behaves as stupidly as little Nell's grandfather in the old curiosity shop, makes errors of judgment, squabbles petulantly with his crew, alienates the peoples of other worlds, and is at a loss to cope with the temperamental behaviour of his ship. 26th of March. John Lucarotti speaks to Elsie M. Smith for an interview which is syndicated to a number of local papers, with the longest version, quoting the man himself, being published in the Oxford Mail today. Previous iterations have been published on other days of the week. He gets Doctor Who ideas on long walks. By Elsie M. Smith. Quotes the writer as saying, I try to combine adventure stories with reality that was or that is. City Beneath the Sea, the serial he wrote for ITV, dealt in terms of present-day knowledge of oceanography. The Doctor Who stories are based on Marco Polo's journals and a great deal of checking has been done to ensure accuracy. After giving away spoilers for the next episode, tune in next time for those, he says writing Doctor Who is 5% inspiration and 95% perspiration. I go for long walks. People probably think I'm mad because I mutter to myself, stare into shop windows or go to a cinema while the ideas take shape. Then I do the research and not until I have the whole thing cleared in my head do I sit down to the typewriter. The what? After An Unearthly Child, The Firemaker, and If You Call This Story Marco Polo, which too much information does, even though most paperwork of the time seems to think it is called A Journey to Cathay, by 1974, BBC Enterprises are referring to it as Marco Polo, and that's what most of us have always called it anyway. Then, Rider from Shang Tu is the fourth episode or story to be titled After a Character. In this case, Skilled Horseman and dashing Ping Cho love interest Ling Tao. Both Tati Lemko and Gabor Boraka will go on to appear in The Crusade. Lemko also returns, with his eye patch, but not his monkey, in The Mythmakers, and he does some choreography on the Celestial Toymaker. But both he and Baraka are united by the sad fact that despite appearing in a number of episodes and in different stories, there is no moving footage remaining of either actor in any of their Doctor Who performances. In terms of design and studio layout, this is the most ambitious episode of the lot, Marco Polo-wise. A number of sets have to be squeezed into the small studio. Philip Voss is later to remember being shocked at how tiny the space he had to work in is. And his memory did not cheat. The scene with him lurking on the outskirts of the camp, ready to attack, with Michael Guest's Mongol bandit at his side, is captured by just one camera. A creeper camera. Camera 4. The episode's three other cameras are pedestal cameras. Because any more than one camera will be surplus to requirements when capturing two actors squashed together on a set which measures four foot by six foot. One presumes that Mongol plotting is, amongst other things, resolutely stationary. It's an episode of two halves, really. The first part of the episode is largely confined to the north side of Studio D, Lime Grove, with the bamboo forest set and, to the east, an open tent, and to the west, Marco's tent from the roof of the world. The southern part of the set is where the latter half of the action takes place, the way station at Cheng Ting, an ambitious layout including stables, the TARDIS, a trough, a fish tank and a balcony. The way station interior is an augmented version of previous sets, as designer Barry Newbury reasons that all such way stations would be designed to feature similar elements, but would get more opulent as they got closer to Kublai Khan himself. There is a TARDIS set this week, but just one wall and the console. The brief sequence is, like Akamat and his Mongol mate, designed to be captured with just one camera. 
That TARDIS scene, scene 29, and near the end of the episode, is in fact recorded first. This is unusual, recording out of sequence, but it is done to make the recording session tidier. The episode begins with a filmed reprise of last week's cliffhanger, cut together with a telecine shot, which is a pan over the tents of the bamboo forest, a model, before the episode title and writer captions are superimposed over the first as-live studio moment, which is a held shot on Akamat's hand on his sword. When the Doctor asks Ian if he killed the guard, the teacher's line, No, of course not, is an insertion late in the day, clearly to emphasise that our heroes don't do that kind of thing. If you are half as aggressive with this as you are with your tongue, Doctor, we can't lose, says Marco as he gives the Doctor a sword. It's a brilliant line worth celebrating just for a moment. The Doctor, when suggesting that they escape in his timeship, calls it TARDIS, not THE TARDIS. Nothing is quite standardised in this fledgling show just yet. Hartnell then fluffs his line about them using the TARDIS to take them somewhere safe. Still, he delivers the one about Marco, if he believes Tigana, being a bigger fool than even I think you are, superbly, and oh my, the script is sparkling this week. His excellent line about needing more than swords, or an overgrown bread knife, as he refers to his, gloriously, and showing some enterprise, is inserted into the script very late in the day, presumably to make Ian's thoughts about the bamboos sound a little less like he's plucked them from nowhere. A lot of the dialogue is tweaked here and there, but Ian gets an additional line about the bamboo noise being terrifying, and in the script he says that it's the only chance, rather than his more optimistic, it's worth a chance, in the episode's finalised form. When Ian notices the moon is up, Marco says, we must gamble the attack comes now, which is all well and good, except he says it again half a page later, exactly the same line. This is because at this earlier juncture, he was actually supposed to say something slightly different. The attack may come at any minute, but he has muddled the two very similar lines, Mark Eden, leading to him not saying one of them and saying the other one twice. There is a recording break after the fight and the egress of the Mongols. The action starts again with the telecine of Marco's diary entry, which loses its last line, explaining that they have halted at a small wayside near a village before picking up on the regulars, who are now in the tent, with repositioned cameras. When Marco gives the crew back a bit of freedom, Tagana loses a cautionary line. They will use whatever you give them as weapons against us. Ian's line about Tagana being terrified of the ship is removed from the script, but finds its way back in before transmission. When Ling Tao is presented by Susan, his job description, as a courier to Kublai Khan, is moved to the top of the scene rather than a few lines in as it is in the script, in order that we know what this stranger is here for straight away. There is a second recording break after the second of Marco's diary entries has run into an establishing shot of the pool at the way station at Cheng Ting. With the cameras repositioned and some costume changes, the recording starts again with everyone in the courtyard of their new location. Here, Wang Lo's greeting of the women as gracious ladies is an addition to the script. He also gets a bit of extra rhubarb when talking to Marco whilst the Doctor frets about the TARDIS. The Doctor isn't over the moon about the colourful Wang Lo storing the TARDIS in the stables and his brilliant, fuming, what does he think it is? A potting shed or something, is an improvement on the script's bathing hut. A potting shed is always going to sound funnier than a bathing hut, especially when coming out of a cross William Hartnell's mouth. When comparing the goldfish to her friends, Susan gets an extra line or two alluding to Ian's piscine doppelganger as... Splashing around all over the place. And Barbara's as... All by itself. Ping Cho, however loses a line and a considerable amount of poetry with her speech about her home completely erased. In the script it reads, It's a comfortable house, one that wants people to live in it. There is a garden like this, not as magnificent but still very beautiful. And in the summer evenings the air is filled with a thousand scents and the soft, tiny sound of hummingbirds' wings. 
I used to watch them for hours as they hovered in front of the flowers, drawing off the nectar. The end of the episode is reworked considerably from the scripted page. After Susan has been given the key by Ping Cho, all the business about promising to say goodbye has been added. The TARDIS scene, too, is a quite late addition, in order to give the viewer the impression that the regulars might well take off and escape, rather like they did in Paleolithic times in the first story, literally running away for their lives from the adventure. The build-up has many subtle differences, too. The major change is that in the original script, it is Susan, not Ian, who distracts the guard by offering him a drink. And indeed, as Ian ultimately does, having a sip herself to prove that it is okay. The Doctor even expresses his admiration for her brave, quick thinking, calling her a clever girl <clears throat> for drinking underage. However, as the others make their escape, the guard, with Susan still nearby, throws the drink container down when it is empty, and it is this which alerts Tigana, who in turn grabs Susan before she can reach the TARDIS, and in time for the cliffhanger. However, it is decided instead, but well into the rehearsal week, that Ian should be the one distracting the guard, Susan too young to be flirting or drinking, and so the schoolteacher distracts and then knocks out the guard, and Susan goes back to say goodbye to Ping Cho, and it is that that causes the delay that gets her captured. New guest character Wang Lo is quite an extraordinary fellow, rather colourful and fun. Doctor Who's first foray into camp? Director Waris Hussain later recalls that the casting of actors like Baraka and Lemko is an attempt to bring some lightness to an otherwise long and dangerous story. And Wang Lo is certainly the show's first attempt at a comedic guest character. Hussein describes what Baraka does as gay acting. Whilst a show of this kind could never be explicit about such things, they could be conveyed in performance, especially with a gay actor under the supervision of a gay director. And for anyone thinking that this is all political correctness gone mad, it's worth bearing in mind that at this point, homosexual acts, even between consenting adults, are not legal in the UK and will not be for another three years. The Who Paul Carson. People with only a passing interest in such things, you know, normal, healthy people, probably like you, but not like me, may not be aware that there are a handful of Doctor Who actors about whom we know nothing, or very little. Beyond the odd scrap on IMDB, which can be very unreliable, by the way, and this proved to be the case with Paul Carson, as it mixes him up with someone else, these thesps have faded into the background, and even their birth and death dates are hard to discover, especially if those names have very common constituent parts, like, say, Paul and Carson. And even more especially, if the name they acted under wasn't their birth name, or at least was only part of it. And even more especially, if they weren't from the UK, where we can get records. In the case of our Rider from Shang Tu, he was carrying all of those especialists in his baggage. And up until it came to tackling this podcast, it is fair to say that Paul Carson was one of that number, that band of brothers and sisters about whom we knew practically nothing. One of the lost unknowns, the potentially forever unknowables. But whilst too much information drew a blank, frustratingly, with both of the Daleks actors Jonathan Crane and Gerald Curtis, with Paul Carson, we have had some luck. And so, for the first time ever, here is what is now known about the actor whose character gives this episode its title. And at the time of this recording, none of this is in any internet resources or guidebooks. Paul Carson was born, very unhelpfully, Robert Allen Carson, on August the 18th, 1934. He was the son of Robert W. Carson and Dorothea Eikins, and he was born in Mineral Wells, Texas, USA. He made his stage debut in a role which would prove to be not entirely unrelated to his Doctor Who work, in that it involved 
Caucasian actors passing themselves off as East Asian characters. He was aged six with the Fort Worth Civic Opera in 1940 to be seen playing Trouble in Madame Butterfly, the enduring opera from Puccini about unrequited love between a Japanese girl and an American officer, which of course features in the Doctor Who TV movie. This connection with Japan continued when Bobby, as he was known, moved with his family to Tokyo in 1951, when his father was stationed there. After graduating from high school, he became the drama critic of the Nippon Times and developed a lifelong love of kabuki theatre. In 1953, he returned to the US to enlist in the Air Force and worked in an intelligence division where he learned Russian. He then studied at UCLA, graduating with a motion picture degree in 1959. He toured in the play Maria Stewart and then appeared off-Broadway in Lady of the Affairs. He was, at around this time, briefly engaged to the actress Kim Novak. But before the decade's end, he had headed for London, destination RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. He prepared well for his audition and got in at the first attempt. And whilst there, he became the first ever American to be awarded the William Pohl Prize for verse speaking. Another American in his year was Larry Linville, later Major Frank Burns in MASH, whilst other graduating contemporaries included David Warner, John Alderton and The Massacre's David Weston. Whilst at RADA, he met Annette Groombridge, who was a student at the Royal College of Music. He asked me to programme some background music for a series of performances he was mounting with some fellow RADA students in the holidays. After we married, one of us had to have an income coming in, so when the registrar at RADA offered me the job of admin assistant, I took it and went on to become front-of-house manager of the Academy's Vanbrugh Theatre. Paul was a very cultured and well-educated young man. Like me, he was an opera lover, and when he discovered Pollock's toy theatres, he got hooked on staging performances with homemade, hand-painted sets and characters. We set up a fairly large model theatre in the living room, complete with on-stage lighting, and we would mount a performance of Tosca or whatever using an LP of the opera to an invited audience of friends. I've never met another man who took me to opera and ballet. Whilst at RADA, it was discovered that Equity would not allow another Robert Carson on their books, and so he and Annette sat down together to choose an alternative name. Victor Carson it nearly was, but he was strangled at birth by Annette, and so Robert became Paul, and that is who graduated from drama school in 1961. He went straight into rep, first at Leatherhead as juvenile lead, and then, where well, if he was unfamiliar with his environment when he arrived, by the time of opening night, then he was pretty sure it was Chroma. In the Regency Players' production of Hay Fever, the stage gave him the ultimate affirmation under the circumstances, saying that Paul Carson managed to sound just like Noel Coward. He also appeared there in the American Space Age comedy Visit to a Small Planet, playing an alien called Creton. Then, in 1962, it was to Liverpool to join his RADA contemporary Jennifer Hillary in Giradou's The Enchanted, where he was, according to the stage, a sincere, likeable supervisor. Immediately after that, he was with Hillary again, this time in Birmingham, in The Tempest, his villainous Antonio plotting amongst a company that included Derek Jacobi's Ferdinand, Alexis Canner's Caliban, and Mr Wilkes from Emmerdale Farms' Stefano. Also at Birmingham, and with Mr Wilkes, was Saint's Day, in which both were singled out for their fine performances, whilst in The Rivals, Jacobi and Mr Wilkes, Arthur Pentelow to give him his due and actual name, were both highly praised in the stage, whilst Carson was not one whit behind them in the part of Falkland, who is bedeviled by the spirit of uncertainty. Apart from a brief return to Cromer, he was at Birmingham for pretty much all of 1962, and in November won admiration for taking over, at very late notice, the leading role in a play when the company's leading man, Ralph Nosek, fell ill. Still with Birmingham Rep in March 1963, the year of Doctor Who's birth, Paul played Saturninus in Titus Andronicus. It's so at one with the lust, greed and treachery of the Emperor that one looks forward to seeing him in parts that will exercise these talents to the full. In May, he went to London, 
and was straight away rehearsing for six characters in search of an author at the Mayfair, playing, prophetically as it happens, the waiter. Ralph Richardson was the leading man. Then it was to the Mermaid Theatre in more illustrious company, Sonia Dresdell, Barry Ingham, Joss Ackland, Kenneth Griffith, in The Possessed by Camus from Dostoevsky's novel. In 1964, a Bucks newspaper promised that A Texas-born star of radio, television and the stage comes to the Palace Theatre Watford on Monday to appear in Murder Without Crime. He is Paul Carson, another of the top-flight actors promised to Watford. Being well-versed in Japanese culture might, to modern ears, seem like an odd thing to make someone suitable for playing a Chinese character, but as we will discover in a couple of episodes' time, being Czechoslovakian was enough of a qualification, so Japan is practically ideal. Ideal enough, anyway, to secure Carson his first TV booking, courtesy of Waris Hussain, playing Ling Tao in Marco Polo. Later, in 1964, he appeared in an episode of No Hiding Place, a rainbow turned to dust, which, like his Marco Polo episodes, is sadly missing. The same fate was shared by his appearance in the 30-minute theatre Dennis Potter Emergency Ward 9, in which he played a doctor, but this has turned up some years ago now, so at least we can see him in action on the small screen. Cinema work, of course, has endured more, and his film roles included The Bedford Incident, 1965, in which he mans the comms and deciphers enemy messages, his command of Russian coming in very useful here, with much of his dialogue in that language. He also gets billing at the front of the film, and not everyone in the cast manages that, including Donald Sutherland. There was also A Countess from Hong Kong, 1967, before he crossed paths with another popular culture icon in You Only Live Twice as an astronaut in the first American spacecraft at the start of the 1967 classic Bond movie in a memorable sequence where one space capsule, Paul's, is eaten by another. But perhaps his greatest on-screen impression was made in advertising, as the G-Man for a pair of Gillette commercials shown in cinemas. They were Raymond Chandler-style spoofs, with Paul as the razor-recommending gumshoe lead character. After this, he returned to the US, settling in New York, where he appeared on and off-Broadway in plays including The Bashful Genius, Royal Hunt of the Sun, Pal Joey and A Man for All Seasons, and from 1970 he was with the Missouri Repertory Company. He retired from acting in 1975 and began working as a waiter at Gatsby's and Le Difference in New York City. He returned to Dallas in 1978 and was still waiting on tables at the time of his death. He was head waiter at Sarducci's Ristorante at the Harvey Hotel in Plano. He was just 54 when he died on the 3rd of February, 1989. IMDB confuses him with a sports reporter in America of the same name, and so the pair's credits, reporter Paul sometimes played a fictional version of his real-life job in various US films and TV shows, have been amalgamated to inaccurate effect, and so our Paul was a mystery until very recently. Fortunately, when contacted, Annette, who has kept the Carson name and is now a respected writer of historical biographies and a well-known expert on Richard III, she's published books about him and was one of the team behind the finding and excavating of the King's Bones in a Leicester car park, was happy to fill in some details. But even she had been unaware what became of Paul after he left the UK. Their parting was amicable and she had expected them to remain in touch, but time and distance meant they lost track of each other. Fortunately, too much information was able to tell her what became of Paul and also to show her the two reconstructions of his Doctor Who episodes. I loved it that Paul got the girl at the end, she says. Gabor Boraka. Playing Wang Lo, the jolly way station manager, is Hungarian actor Gabor Boraka. He was born in Budapest in 1926. Brought up as part of a well-to-do Jewish family, before he'd finished school, persecution was rife and the family's properties and businesses had been confiscated. Gabor was sent to a labour camp where he was forced to help to build a railroad track. In a pleasing symmetry, 
he blew up the very same track as the Russian troops advanced and he and a band of fellow SKPs went into hiding, following behind the Russians as they headed in to liberate Budapest. After the Second World War, some of the family's property was returned. Yes, they gave us back our property, he noted ruefully later. Then they took it away from us again since everything belonged to the state. He studied at the Budapest Academy of Dramatic Art and then joined the National Theatre there, playing leading roles in classical and international plays. But then he was asked to use his profile as an actor to help drum up subscriptions for the journal of the ruling Russian-controlled Communist Party, and he declined. This put a black mark against his name and threats of him being expelled by the National Theatre, working there essentially made him a government employee and boycotted by the acting profession. And so, one night in July 1950, come curtain up, a National Theatre play began without one of its key cast members in the building. He had made his escape with his sculptor sister Marta and headed for Germany, from where he set sail to Australia, giving his profession as Hatter. He managed to get some amateur theatre work in Perth, despite knowing no English at all. So in those first parts I played, I simply learned to say the lines, not knowing what they meant, he said. On his very first journey, after buying a bicycle with what little money he had to get him to and from his work, he was hit by a car in North Perth at 7.15 one morning and went through its windscreen, dislocating a shoulder and lacerating a wrist. He spent two months in hospital, learning some English off the nurses who looked after him. He eventually graduated to good parts in plays like Arsenic and Old Lace and A Streetcar Named Desire. And he produced some as well, including a successful Tartuffe which went on tour. He then joined the Metropolitan and Little Theatres in Melbourne, after his mother had also managed to escape Hungary and join his sister there, and acted with the university's union rep. In 1957, he finally managed to secure some professional work and got a huge break when asked to perform as Mr Van Dan in the Diary of Anne Frank at the Princess Theatre Melbourne and Theatre Royal Sydney, which brought back stark memories of being forced in real life to wear the Star of David, which of course the characters have to do in the play. According to the Australian Jewish News, he gave... One of the standout performances of the season. He then played Sandor the Jewish bookmaker in The Bells Are Ringing in Melbourne. Jewish news journalist Pamela Buskin noted that He has retained some accent, but he speaks a very good and most attractive English and has a beautifully pitched voice. This curly-haired, plump, bright-eyed young man is very much an actor, a volatile, many-gestured, chain-smoking enthusiast who lives and loves the theatre and finds the real world somewhat unreal. He has never played in a musical before and was, when I saw him, alternating between delight and anxiety until he reassured himself that he was made for the part, as indeed he is. Gabor Baraka is a friendly young man with a burning ambition to make a name in the theatre, to be a great actor. He has come a long way and mastered great obstacles in the last few years. Now he is on the way up. Not just up, but across the world. As in 1962, Baraka was heading for England, and was soon appearing on television. His first small screen role in the UK was, as it happens, alongside Tigana himself, Darren Nesbitt, in an episode of Man of the World in the December of his first year in the UK. Immediately before Marco Polo, he appeared in an episode of Drama 63, alongside Mark Eden. So maybe he had one or more co-star advocating for him. If not, he definitely had a few friends on hand when he joined the cast this week. Warris Hussain remembers Garbor as being a great friend of the singer Dorothy Squires, who had an unfortunate marriage to Roger Moore. Garbor was a well-known mixer and mover in London's gay circles and told me lurid stories about the gay underworld. Wang Lo wasn't gay in the script, but you could say he was gay acting. It could be signalled, but couldn't be spoken. Garbor did behave quite camply. He was quite over the top. Hailing from distant shores meant that Baraka qualified to play any nationality you wanted, really. As well as Wang Lo, UK TV had him, a say, Austrians, 
Germans, he was fluent in the language, Russians, Poles and Italians. Indeed, on his return to Doctor Who in the Crusade, he plays Genoese merchant Luigi Ferrigo. His other TV credits, and there was a steady stream of them throughout the 1960s, included a Terry Nation ITV Play of the Week in 1964, a strand that also found him in a major production of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment that year, and he did a couple of Wednesday plays, The Champions and The Saint before his final TV appearance in 1970. He was also in a few films in small, uncredited roles, the most notable of which is probably his spectre number 13 in Thunderball, mopping himself nervously with a hanky as the guy next to him is electrocuted by Blofeld during the multinational spectre annual report and cull. He is also a naughty nightclub owner in 1967's Smashing Time. In 1966, he got the chance to work with comedians Mike and Bernie Winters on their Saturday night TV show. This pleased him greatly. As soon as a producer hears my accent, I am immediately cast as a heavy or a baddie, he said at the time. I love television, and of course I am pleased to be offered parts, but it's depressing being a villain or the spy of the piece all the time. So naturally I was pleased when I was asked to do some comedy sketches with Mike and Bernie, and I'm hoping this might lead to some more cheerful roles. He seems to have got his wish partly due to his size becoming more prominent than his accent and leading to a different kind of typecasting. Weighing in at 20 stone, many of his reviews referred to his weight or girth as well as his enthusiastic perkiness, and he was carving a niche with a certain kind of part, always handy for a character actor. Evidence of this couldn't be more stark than when he took over a major role, Lazar Wolf in Fiddler on the Roof at Her Majesty's Theatre in 1968 from Paul Whitson Jones, perhaps the UK character actor most famous for his rotundity at the time. That was an engagement that kept him busy for two years, and then he was immediately at Drury Lane for Bernard Delfont, appearing in a major part in The Great Waltz, another two-year engagement. He toured Agatha Christie's Fiddler's Three with Peggy Mount and Raymond Francis in 1972 and 1973. He has the comic's greatest asset, a funny face and a humpy-dumpy figure. He also has a very nice sense of fun and timing. Peggy Conroy, Nottingham Evening Post. He was in a play, Bernard Pomerantz's Someone Else is Still Someone, which premiered at the Bush Theatre in 1974, but that appears to have been that. He was a resident in Westbourne Court in London W2 when he died, apparently in Algiers, in Algeria, on the 30th of April 1983, aged just 56. And so that's the end of another instalment of Doctor Who. It's an episode where the dialogue fizzes and explodes with as much gusto as the bamboo, and Ian's cordial face-off with Marco is lovely to behold. Two men who respect each other but who need different outcomes politely making manoeuvres. It has the effect of making the audience sympathetic to both men and thus tugs us in different directions all at the same time. Lucarotti, or is it Whitaker, seems to have got a handle on the Doctor too, making his spitefulness funny. And he is spiky and saucy in the face of Marco's reasonable intractableness. It's good too that the TARDIS crew aren't conned by the obviously villainous Tigana. They're not daft, they're on to him, but he has the home advantage and he enjoys parading his status within Marco's ally circle over them. Meanwhile, Susan and Ping Cho's totally believable and charmingly written and played friendship buys us the frustrating act that causes the cliffhanger. As for the episode's title character, Ling Tao, he is a handsome, well-spoken and well-acted hero-like figure who brings with him a lovely little history lesson about how couriers managed to cover so much ground without destroying their bodies or killing their horses. It's a bit of a Rethian info dump, but it is neither trite nor overly earnest. This detail is actually lifted from the real Marco Polo's writings, as is Quitju's reference to the Khan adopting paper money. Sidney Newman, would have been over the moon. And Lord Wreath too, if he's watching, which he could be. He's still active at 75 and serving as vice chairman of the British Oxygen Company. Barry Newbury's sets are absolutely stunning, especially Wang Lo's gaff, Yes Way Station, 
and is just one of the many clever and beautiful designs that are a key element to the success of this stunning-looking production. The episodes may be gone, but fortunately some colour photographs were taken in the studio this week, and so we have them preserved in all their visual beauty, if only in still form. The Mongols have been bamboozled, and the travellers summoned to their final destination, the court of Kublai Khan. A good job too, as the story can't really afford another attempt by the travellers to get back into the TARDIS, lest it become a trifle repetitive. But now, the game of chess will become one of backgammon but even more players will be thrown into the mix. Oh, and it's as far away as a night star. Doctor Who, Rider from Shang Tu. Featured Xenia Merton as Ping Cho, Philip Voss as Akomat, Michael Guest as Mongol Bandit, Paul Carson as Ling Tao, Garbor Boraka as Wang Lo, and Tutti Lemko as Kuitju. The title music was by Ron Grainer, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. The incidental music by Tristram Carey. The story editor was David Whittaker. The designer, Barry Newbury. And the associate producer was Mervyn Pinfield. Coming next, Ping Cho does a runner and gets Ian embroiled in some monkey business whilst the Doctor discovers he has some things in common with one of the most notorious and powerful leaders of the 13th century. That's next time on Doctor Who, Too Much Information. Next episode, Mighty Kubla Khan, or Gout of This World. Too Much Information, Rider from Shang Tu, was written and presented by me, Toby Haydoke, with additional voices provided by Chrissy Bone. Special thanks to Annette Carson, and thanks to Richard Bignall, David Brunt, Peter Crocker, Graham Kibble-White, Kral Thal, Patrick Mulkern, Peter Ware, Rhys Williams, and Boris Hussain. The series consultant is Richard Bignall, and the music has been specially composed by Wayne Shepherd. There is a supplemental podcast, one per story as opposed to per episode, called Far Too Much Information that for now is exclusive to patrons who qualify for bonus material, early releases and other exclusives, as well as pictures of my dog. Patrons are also nearly six months ahead with my Happy Times and Places podcast. So if you want to hear what esteemed YouTuber Josh Snares makes of the Romans or Liverpool fan legend Erica Lear loves about the caves of Androzani, most of it's to do with Peter Davison, then pop over there right now, but have your credit card ready. That sounds a bit scary, doesn't it? But don't worry, it's £3 a month. References Most of the information herein, as with every too much information, comes from going back to source and sifting through the original scripts and paperwork, which have been shared from various sources. You know who you are, and thank you. Special thanks for this edition are definitely owed to Annette Carson, who very gamely and openly responded to what, if you think about it, must have been a very weird set of requests from me. She's a proper historian, who was one of the team behind one of the most determined and committed needle-in-a-haystack historical finds of all time, so maybe she has some sympathy for an idiot trying to patiently uncover everything about 25 minutes of lost Doctor Who in case he stumbles across some gold. But nevertheless, she's still been very kind to a stranger, and I'm hugely grateful. Patrick Mulkern wrote three of the best research articles about a particular story, going into detail by poring over paperwork with Marco Polo's director, Warris Hussain, over three issues in Doctor Who magazine from issue 483 in 2015. I've also been in contact with Patrick and he has been extremely generous with materials and insight. And to think, I was too scared initially and he has been so helpful. Simon Gerrier is doing some paperwork collation of this era of the show and making it much easier to navigate. So huge thanks to him and David Brunt too for similar and related efforts. I have also consulted various reference works for this podcast, namely Doctor Who A Complete History, edited by John Ainsworth and Mark Wright, with contributions from Jonathan Morris, Alistair McGowan and Richard Atkinson, and much of it based, of course, on those fantastic archives features by Andrew Pixley. 
The TARDIS wiki page and Shannon Patrick Sullivan's complete history of time travel have also been very, very valuable for quick, handy reference, and I subscribe to a number of internet, history and newspaper resources. They're places that are very easy to get lost in for several days, and they do charge a subscription fee. I walk in the shadows of giants when it comes to all of this stuff, albeit giants whose bodies have been adapted to withstand the carrying of plastic bags full of photocopies and portable scanners. Errata. At some point I will go back in and alter the earlier episodes with the wrong dates for the model filming of Marco Polo, which are given elsewhere. But I got a revised filming schedule that isn't in the BBC archives, which has some late amendments, so whilst apologising for the mistake, it is one that you would have made too, to be fair. So, yeah, I will go and update those past issues at some point, but let this stand as an official statement that the model work for the early episodes of Marco Polo was not done on the 13th, it was done on the 16th of January 1964. Well, now we know. I would like to thank the patrons who make these podcasts possible, and they include Stephen Moffat, Mark Cockrum, PDT, Tom Hunter-Watts, Philip Marsh, Jeff Sear, Chris Phone, Mr. Widdit, Steve Manfred, Kitty Placati, Ruben Herfindahl, Peter Burns, Peter Harness, Ronald Hayden, Rob Leonard, Christopher Meredith, Richard Straw, Neil Tate, Nick Tedston, Tim Arding, David, Nigel Bromley, Jenny at Blue Box 99, Paul Cook, Richard Chalk, Rob Dawson, Grant Davidson, John Deere, Chris Dunford-Kelk, Paul Dunn, Jason Gorman, Siobhan Galichon, Chris Hyam, Ian Key, Joe Llewellyn, Ian K. McLachlan, Gavin McLean, Philip Marsh, Nathan Martin, The Missing Episodes Doctor Who Podcast, Rick Moran, Kevin Murdoch, Graham Knott, Adam Parker, Barry Platt, Risto Matti Sarillo, Frank Shales and David Trania. If you would like to support these podcasts, which helps to maintain their freedom from advertising and ensures that they are kept regular, then you can go to patreon.com forward slash Toby This also helps with the various subscriptions and things that uh, I undertake in order to make these as accurate as possible. Patreon costs as little as £3 a month, and for that you'd be listening to this a bit earlier. We're usually about a month ahead with too much information and with the Indefinable Magic podcasts. There's also a far too much information podcast that is exclusive to patrons. There are also bonus releases, tie-in interviews and pictures of my dog, which you don't get anywhere else. You also get the Happy Times and Places podcast six months ahead of their current release rate on iTunes and other corners of the internet that deal in hot podcast action. So that's patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock. Three pounds a month. You do get things as you ascend up the higher tiers. There, there are other amounts that you can pay, but all of the spoken material, all of the content is available at that very lowest level. It's a, it's a kind of pay what you what you can afford slash what you think it's worth kind of model. Um, if you don't want to subscribe to a monthly commitment, you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydock where you can make a donation. You know, now and again, I know some people who make a donation every time one of these ones comes out the too much information's because they are, yes, harder work than, <laughs> than, than doing a commentary. And that's great. That really works for me if that works for you. And um, that's ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydock. Uh, and I'm really grateful for anything that is thrown into my uh, cyberspace flat cap that's lying on the floor as I strum my guitar and sing out the dates of recording of 60 episodes of Doctor Who. Uh, and if you can't do either, because my goodness, prices are soaring uh, and it's getting colder, energy is getting more expensive, food is getting more expensive, uh, and we need every penny that we can get. And so I understand if you don't have it for frivolities like Doctor Who trivial assaults uh, unleashed in the verbal medium but what you can do is you can do something that costs you nothing and that's to go to itunes uh, to podbean to spotify 
everywhere that you can get these podcasts and to leave very good reviews and five star ratings it's those five star ratings that help to separate these from the herd and get people who might not see that these things even exist uh well it might it might it might it might have them waved under their noses and it means more people listen and it means the effort has been even more worthwhile i enjoy doing them i hope you enjoy listening the main thing is to say thanks very much for listening and please keep doing so these podcasts have their own feed on Twitter at Haydoke Podcasts. I'm on at Toby Haydoke. I also have a I hate the word fan page on uh, Facebook just because my personal page has run out of space. I've got too many friends. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to cut that back to only people that I know so I can put more personal stuff on there and the fan page will become the one where all my work stuff goes. So please sign up for the fan page if you want my stuff, my you know, content, the Doctor Who ramblings, etc., etc. It's still me. There's no, I don't have people, can't afford people, but it's just a way that I can separate my real life from my life of wanging on about Doctor Who, although there's not actually that much difference. But you, you know what I mean. I'm sure you do. Uh, so that's all the social media stuff. And look, if you're on Twitter and Facebook, they're very powerful tools. If you could say nice things about happy times and places, too much information, indefinable magic, or just any of this stuff that I do, it, it really does help. And I'm I'm very grateful. And a little trivial bomb. I did, it didn't seem right to stick it in there, but a little trivia. The, the other astronaut uh, in that sequence where Paul Carson's ship gets gobbled up uh, in the James Bond film is uh, Norman Jones, uh, who's Chris Ong in The Abominable Snowmen, Major Baker in Doctor and the Silurians, and Hieronymus in The Mask of Mandragora. Little did I know when I remember watching that movie as a kid when that came out that I was too quite important Doctor Who actors. So there they are, getting gobbled up at the beginning of a James Bond film. Doctor Who gets everywhere, and so it should. <laughs>